I led a lot of worship here in England when we were living here, but actually never preached. Uh, so, I've been preaching a lot in Sweden, but usually do that in Swedish. Surprise. Um, so this will be my first time preaching in England and in English. So um, bear with me <laughs> if I get stuck. It's a safe place to do it with family. Uh, you are currently in a, a teaching series uh, about how to live out your faith. And so I was praying and preparing for, for this uh, night. I just felt God saying um, or asking this question to, to me and to us all. How are you living out your faith internally? which might be an unusual way to look at living out your faith. We always think about living it out in relation to other people. But how are you living out your faith in relation to yourself? How do we carry the kingdom of God into our own hearts and into our own souls? Because that's where it always starts. In Proverbs 4:23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Above all, guard your heart. Everything you do flows from it. So if we want to live out our faith and we want to do that authentically, um, it needs to start in our hearts. It needs to be real. In Proverbs 20, 27, it says, the human spirit is the lamp of the Lord that sheds light on one's inmost being. And in the Swedish translation of this Bible, which I've read more times, it says more that, that the spirit is a lantern that explores every room in our inner beings. And that explores every room. Uh, and I want you guys to, to bring that image with you throughout this uh, this talk um, about seeing our own souls or our hearts as a lot of different rooms which all have a door <laughs> to them and it can actually be even though we're believers and we've given our lives to Jesus that we have invited him into some rooms but not all uh, sometimes there are doors closed um, sometimes there are rooms we don't even know about ourselves and that's why the spirit needs to explore it he knows and that word like the human spirit in Hebrew is nishmat I don't know if that's how it's pronounced but probably not a lot of you do either so nishmat uh, it's the inner spiritual part of human life that was breathed into uh, humanity in creation, where it says that the spirit breathed his life into man. And that constitutes the, us humans as spiritual beings, set apart from other created things, that we have a spirit of moral, of intellect, uh, and spiritual capacity. So, the spirit in us that God himself breathed, his own spirit in us, 
is like a lamp exploring every room within us if we let him. Because we know he's a gentleman, so he doesn't break the door in. Uh, he doesn't walk through, um, he, he does walk through closed doors. Um, now when I think about it, but he wants us to invite him in. In Revelations, um, in the letters to the churches, it says that, that Jesus is knocking on the door and whoever opens, he will come in and share a meal, share community, share relationship and intimacy. Um, and we misuse that a lot. It's kind of an invite to salvation. <laughs> like who, Jesus is knocking at your heart, your heart's door, uh, do you want to invite him in? And, and we use that a lot as a way to invite people. But this is written to a church. It's written to his church. Um, and I've been wondering a lot of times, like how did he end up on the outside of his own church? Like he needs to knock like, hey, do you want me to be part of this? Let me in. Um, <clears throat> But that word, intimacy, now we've just been at Waverly Abbey Tuesday to Friday with um, leaders from across, across the globe with 24-7. 17 nations were represented, which was very exciting. Um, but we shared communion and, and the national leader of um, Germany spoke on intimacy as we were taking communion. And he said that the word intimacy is from the Latin intimus, meaning inmost, our inmost. Intimacy occurs when in relationship you have access to someone's inmost and shares that. And that's the, the goal with our relationship with Jesus to have intimacy, that he has access to our inmost. So we need to invite him in before we can live him out. So that's what we're talking about tonight. Um, I shared at the um, Euroleaders gathering in January with 24-7 um, a parable about a Swedish historic event. And I would like to share that with you as well. Um, I'm guessing you don't have a lot of Swedish history in schools here in England. Um, if I were to, I wouldn't have to explain this in Sweden, the back story, but I think I have to here, maybe we're not seen as the, the biggest, most influential country here. But in the 17th century, in 1628 or 25 it started, uh, the Swedish king was named Gustav II Adolf. And he ordered ships to be made in his name. And one of those ships was called the Vasa ship. Has anyone heard of the Vasa ship in Sweden? One person, great. Um, everyone in Sweden would, would have heard it. We uh, talk about it in school, usually there's a school trip to the Vasa Museum in Stockholm. Um, but 
this Vasa ship was supposed to be built as a symbol of the Sweden's military and political power at that time. It was supposed to show off the king's authority uh, as a warrior king. And a fortune was spent on this ship to make it look spectacular. So a lot of the, the work and the money and the energy was spent on sculptures and decorations and making sure that the sight of this ship uh, would be impressive and intimidating to the enemy. Uh, but every time when the ship is almost ready, you make a stability test where sailors run across back and forth and see if, um, if it will stand. And Vasa didn't pass the test. They were worried about her stability. And the king was informed, but he still wanted the ship to be finished at the set date. He rushed the process. Uh, he wanted to go to war with Poland. Uh, so they still, uh, they still seed. Maybe that's not the word. They put still, they put Vasa in the sea. Anyway, um, and on her maiden voyage, in 1628, right outside of the bay of Stockholm, uh, this wind came. The first one was okay. The second one made Vasa sink to the bottom of the sea. So, like, biggest fiasco imaginable, <laughs> like preparing to show us, show yourself off and your power and authority, and it looks great. But as soon as the wind came, she capsized. Um, and this ship that was intended to show off the king's power became a huge humiliation. The ship was actually salvaged in 1961. Um, and it's now the most well-preserved ship from that era. And it's displayed in the Vasa Museum in Stockholm. So, um, so we still tell this humiliating story over and over again to millions of people and are surprisingly proud. Um, but this... Um, parable of the Vasa ship is something I've been kind of living with the last year and felt God speaking uh, about. The Vasa ship sank because she was not stable enough to sail in heavy wind. It looked good on the surface, but there was no stability. And the reason they believe is because there was too much boat above surface and too little boat beneath the surface. And it was not enough weight in the bottom of the boat. It was too heavy uh, on the top and too light on the bottom. Uh, and I think that God wants to remind us to build deep. And the more we grow, if we grow high and wide, it will become even more important to build even deeper. And we want what's visible uh, 
above surface to be a reflection of what's underneath and not a cover-up. To make sure that we always have more about <laughs> above surface than under, whether we talk about church or a movement or our personal lives. What are we building that no one sees? How do we live out our faith when no one's watching? How does that affect my life when no one's around? And this invitation to build deep with God, I think, is a double invitation. It is an invitation to prayer, to seeking God, to grow in, in intimacy with Him, prioritizing time in His presence, and so on. But it's also an invitation to go deeper within our own souls. An invitation of a process of inner healing that's needed, taking responsibility for our wounds, whether we cost them ourselves or someone else did, uh, of creating space for lamenting and grieving, repenting where needed, and so on. We want to build deep and we want to build authentic. And I think that the best way to guard our hearts, as we started with, is to always be honest with God to build an honest conversation, relationship. Honesty with God, but also with the ones closest to you, friends, mentor. Uh, I had a mentor uh, in Sweden, we were planting a church. We planted a church in 2009, and for the first 10 years of that season, um, we had a mentor called Magnus, and he always used to say this, he said, God can only meet you where you are, not where you wish you were. Uh, and that advice is one of the best I've been given. But he said that a lot. God can only meet you where you are, not where you wish you were. And that makes total sense. Um, but yet, if we look at it, we often try to meet God where we wish we were. <laughs> just being transported there. Uh, the very first question in the Bible, does anyone know what that is? Where are you at? What? Where are you at? Where are you? That's right. In Genesis, right after the fall, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, uh, have fallen, have sinned for the first time, and their instinct is what humanities have been ever since, to hide, <laughs> to cover up, to pretend nothing happened. Uh, but God is asking, where are you? That's the first question God asks in the Bible. And he asks Adam, where are you? And when God asks a question, it's never because he doesn't know. He never asks a question for his own sake. Like, I can't find you. Uh, where did you go? It's always for our sake. It's because we want, we need to see something. Or it's an invitation from God to answer honestly. And this was an invitation to Adam. Where are you? For him to run to God and not from him. With his failure, with his shame. 
And I often wonder, and I will never get the answer, but what would the consequences of sin have been if Adam would have run to God and not from him? If Adam and Eve would have that instinct <laughs> to run towards him, to put all cards on the table and just confess. But when they're caught, they do the other thing all of us do. They blame. You hide, and when that doesn't work, you blame someone or something else. But this question, where are you? I think that's a question that God asks us every day. It's the everyday invitation to come to him as we are, to come honestly, to say, this is where I'm at. It's not where I wish I were, um, but this is where I'm at. Meet me here. Another story about honesty is from John 4, the woman at the well. Jesus and this woman has a conversa conversation about water. And Jesus is, as usual, cryptical and meaning something else. Uh, but, and she thinks that it's literal. <laughs> so it becomes kind of a weird uh, conversation at first. But the woman comes to a point where she realizes that this man has something that I want. She comes to the point where she said, she said give me this water so I won't get thirsty. I want to have what you have. I want to receive what you want to give me. And when she comes to that point of, yeah, I'm, I want to receive what you have for me. I want that water. The conversation takes um, a turn, a weird turn, where Jesus replies, go call your husband. And she answers, I have no husband. And then Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. It's like Jesus is actually um, more interested in her honesty than the facts. And he is, it's like he's saying, oh, good, that's quite true. And that honesty opens up for the encounter with Jesus and receiving what he has. So Adam gets an invitation from God to come honestly before God, to confess and to receive forgiveness and restoration. This woman also gets the same invitation and she chooses to tell the truth. And what happens in the end of this story is amazing. Those of you who've heard it before, that she goes into town, um, tells people about her encounter with Jesus, and says, I think I've met the Messiah, and brings people, and a lot of people in that town comes to faith. And it's interesting, because 12 apostles have just been in that town, and no one came to faith. And this woman had known Jesus for like five minutes and shares the only thing she knows how to share. She says, I've met someone who told me everything about me. And a whole town gets to know Jesus. 
She shares what she has, what Jesus has gotten access to in her heart, in her life. And that transforms the city. But the powerful thing in this is as well, her testimony. What's her testimony? Meet someone who's told me everything about me. The things that she had been hiding, that she's been ashamed of. And we don't know um, if she had chosen this life or if she had been used and abused by men. In the culture, it's probably more, um, more likely that she had been rejected time and time again and used and thrown away like she had no worth but was still the one that had to carry the blame and the shame of it. And this is what happens when we come to Jesus and gives him even the things that we want to hide and the things we're ashamed of, that he can turn our biggest shame into our greatest testimony. That he can use even that. That becomes her testimony. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked the question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord with all your heart. We can love the Lord, and there can be parts of us we haven't given fully to him, where his love has not been invited in. And that's the question I feel God is asking us today. Are there rooms in your soul, in your heart, where you have not invited God to enter in? Where he has not been allowed to shine his light on the things that we think is dark or dirty? or hurtful, can be pain and grief and wounds, where we can also invite him in to encounter us. It says in Luke 11 that our eyes are the lamp of our body or our soul. And when the eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. And then it says this, which is kind of a weird advice. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. At first, it makes no sense. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when the lamp shines its light on you. This is, um, the goal here seems to be that everything in our body, everything in our soul and heart is illuminated by his light. And that no part is in darkness. Because if just one part is in darkness, it seems to affect the whole body. <laughs> so it's only when, when God's allowed to shine his light on all parts, that the whole body gets illuminated. And I think this is a, a true picture, again, whether we talk about ourselves, our own personal life, or if we talk about the body of Christ. 
and letting God illuminate every part of his body. But this weird sentence, see to it then, that the light within you is not darkness, it seems to apply that we as human beings have the ability to deceive ourselves. So to the point <laughs> that we believe that the darkness in us is actually light. That's how far we can deceive ourselves. And therefore, God is the one that needs to test our heart. The Spirit is the one that needs to shine his light. Because he knows more than we do what we have in our hearts and what rooms are there. Um, I was teaching a few years ago on a, a youth camp with um, a guy from our church. And we were talking about inner healing that week. And he, um, Theodore is his name, he looked up before uh, every Bible verse that talks about testing your heart. And he came to the conclusion that only in one place uh, it says, let us test our hearts. It never says, let me test my heart. Uh, so the one time it says, Let's, let us test our hearts, it's, uh, it's in community. It's doing it together. But every other time, it's a prayer that God would. It's an invitation from us to let God test our hearts. In Psalm 139, for example, it says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a really good prayer to add to your like, daily devotionals, to every day invite God into our hearts, to test our hearts, our thoughts, to see if I'm derailing in some way and to ask him to lead me back to himself. I'm going to land soon. But in 1 John, again, with walking in the light and letting him illuminate. This is First uh, John 1, 5 to 7. This is the mes message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And this text also has kind of a, a weird turn of events because first it's only speaking about God and me. God is light. If I claim to have fellowship with him, but walking in darkness, I lie, do not live out the truth. But if I walk in the light as he is in the light, the more logical end to this sentence would be, then we have fellowship with God. But instead it says, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So walking in the light it affects my relationship with God and his access to my heart and how much I can be illuminated by his light and be able to shine that out. Um, but walking in the light is also the path to true fellowship and intimacy with each other.
So if we, in the end here, go back to the parallel of the Vasa ship, I would like to say this to us and myself as individuals, but also as community and church. It is better to build something real than something perfect. It is better to build something slow and steady than fast and superficial. So let's not rush the process like the king did. Building deep takes time. It's better to have what's visible above water, what's coming out of our lives, what's lived out, to be a reflection of what's underneath, or what's in our hearts, than it being a cover-up. This doesn't mean, so you don't hear me wrong, it doesn't mean sharing everything with everyone without limits or integrity. But are you sharing everything with someone? I think that's also one of the greatest protections of our hearts. And build a culture in church and in your personal relationship with God where you can always come as you are and become who you're meant to be. Roger Nix was talking this morning, for those of you who are here, uh, about identity. And he said, we're becoming who we are. And that's a paradox. That's the, it's both true. <laughs> we are. God has created us in his image. We are who he says we are. But it's also a process of becoming what he's created me to be. I'm not there. We're becoming who we are. <clears throat> and Tyler Staten, how many knows who he is? Tyler Staten is the national leader of 27 USA. And he's written a book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And in this book, he has a chapter on confession and authenticity and honesty, really. And he says this, the pathway to spiritual maturity is a descent, not an ascent. A maturing community is a confessing community, not a church without sin, but a church without secrets. I think that's really powerful. That we have the tendency to see growth as high and wide, as what we see above the surface. Uh, Mark just kind of prophesied my whole teaching, but with a carrot parallel and not, or parable instead of a vassalship. Um, but he did it so quietly, so that was good. Um, so he didn't steal my whole message. Um, but this spiritual maturity is a descent, it's going deeper. If, if a tree falls in a storm or not, it's not dependent on how high and big it is. It's only dependent on how deep the roots are. And I think as well, if we're in a drought, <laughs> what happens in a drought is that the root of the trees has to go deeper to find water. 
If it's constant rain, uh, it's actually going to grow a very super superficial root system. But in seasons of drought, you're forced to seek deeper. Because there's always water. He's the fount. He's uh, the source of living water within us. So spiritual maturity is a descent, not an ascent. And being a mature community doesn't mean a church without sin, but a church without secrets where we can share. And as I said, not sharing everything with everyone, but everyone sharing everything with someone. So to end where we started, how are you living out your faith in relation to God and yourself? How is your faith shaping your heart and your soul? How does your faith affect your decision and lifestyle and habits when no one's watching? Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Andy, we want to pray? Maybe if, um, yeah, Sam and the band, maybe want to join, that'd be great. Should we just stand to our feet? Let's just show our thanks for Maria. That was so rich, and there was just so much in that. Brilliant. <laughs> so rich, so deep, so much wisdom. Thank you. Let's pray together. And maybe we can worship as we close our gathering. Search us, God. Search our hearts, God. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. maturity be a descent into those root systems into the foundation of who we are into those areas of darkness that you want to bring light to just lead us forward in this journey of becoming who we are in Christ growing into his image sense or feel God saying to you, whatever challenge God is bringing to you, just to, to bring that personally as your prayer before God.
where are you? And also, how do you want me to meet you? <laughs> do you want me to meet you in that place? And that invitation is always an invitation to experience his love, to be met by his grace, to be forgiven, to be restored. It's never an invitation to condemnation. It's always an invitation to love, um, to experience more of his love. And it's an invitation to transformation, letting him meet us in a way that makes us more like Christ and more of who we were meant to be more ourselves more free so we can I think we, we can all like picture that image of a door into our hearts a, a room to our hearts and if it's some area of your life where you feel like I I want to invite Jesus into this. It can be a disappointment, a, a grief, a, a wound that hurts so much that you've closed the door, or mistakes or things you want to, to hide. And just like picture yourself if you want to. He's waiting, waiting for you to invite him. He's not going to force it. But if there are, just picture that door and, and that you, you're the one that opens it and says, Jesus, welcome in. Welcome in. You already know what's in here. You know it better than I do. But welcome in. Come and illuminate that room. And as soon as he comes with his light, the darkness is gone. We never have to make a room light by kind of pushing the darkness out. We always do it by just turning the lights on and the darkness gone. And that's that's our goal, that's what we want, for his light to illuminate every part of us. So we'll just worship and and you can have a private conversation with Jesus if you want to and just invite him in. Or you can go to a friend, someone you trust in the room and ask them to pray for you. And if you want prayer but don't know who to go to, you can come here and someone will come and pray for you.